Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Chris Geis, and this is episode 29 titled Dave Moss Tuning on Fitting Your Motorcycle to You. In this episode, I talk with Dave Moss, the founder of Dave Moss Tuning. Dave started racing motorcycles in the late 1990s at the age of 35. He built his own race bike and spent a lot of time digging into the nuances of bike setup and researching motorcycles, their behavior, their design, and the physics behind them so that he could get the most out of his own bike on the track. A lot of other track day riders and racers started coming to Dave for advice on how to set up their own bikes. The help that Dave started offering at that time continued to evolve and develop over the last 24 years, and Dave now has a website and YouTube channel with over a 1,000 items of content related to motorcycle suspension, motorcycle setup, and riding technique that runs the gamut from podcasts to videos to written articles. Dave has an intense passion for helping riders of all experience levels get the most out of their motorcycles and their motorcycle riding. He has found that often simple changes to the setup of a motorcycle can lead to huge gains in rider comfort, rider performance, and rider safety. Dave has developed many tools and techniques to help tweak and adjust the motorcycle so that it fits the rider the way a well-fitted suit or glove fits your body. His advice to anyone who will listen is to first focus your attention on the ergonomics of your motorcycle and making sure it fits you properly, suits your riding style, and handles properly before you invest in other things like exhaust pipes, chrome, and engine modifications. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, September 11, 2019, and is being published on Thursday, October 17, 2019. I hope you enjoy it. So, you want to ride a motorcycle? Well, you've come to the right place. Because this is the So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle podcast. My special guest tonight is Dave Moss, the founder of Dave Moss Tuning, also known as DMT. The goal of Dave Moss Tuning is to save a life within the motorcycling community every day through education and training. And then on Dave's website, it mentions Dave has been helping riders since 1995, no matter what or where they ride. His guidance is centered on making the bike work for the rider, not prescribe a theory that the individual must subscribe to. He recognizes individual differences and our incredible uniqueness as an individual to ensure the motorcycle and rider are perfectly paired together, and if not, why not, and what it will take to fix the issues that need to be resolved. So, welcome, Dave. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So, uh, I'll just give a little bit of background. Well, I'll give you a little bit of background about me since we've never really talked before. We've been kind of doing the, the texting and chatting thing. And uh, my, my listeners are familiar with this, but for anyone who's tuning in for the first time, they'll just kind of get the context of things. So I started riding three years ago at age 53 because my girlfriend wanted to start riding again. And uh, I got her the basic rider course because she wanted to learn proper technique. And I was like, well, if I'm going to pay for her to do it what the heck i might as well join her and i i just was bitten by the bug and you've probably heard this story like over and over again in, in your your years of experience but so i just love riding and it just got to the point where and i'd benefited so much from mostly podcasts but also youtube content you know things like what you're providing on youtube and etc and i just felt after three years it was like time to start 
returning back to the community. And so I started the podcast initially with the idea of just helping get new riders into the sport, which I still am passionate about. But the more I do this, I mean, first of all, many of my riders are experienced riders. So, you know, they want a little bit more than just, you know, how do you, how do you buy your first motorcycle and what's simple riding technique and what do you do in basic rider course and that kind of stuff. Um, and, but also like as over the three years, you know, I've developed, I graduated from a Kawasaki Vulcan S, which I still have. I'm now riding a Z900 RS, which I love. Um, and the more I ride, the more interested I've become in technique and not only what's good riding technique, but also like the, the, the physics and the dynamics of motorcycles and what makes a motorcycle work and, you know, how does someone control a motorcycle effectively and efficiently. And it's kind of interesting because I interviewed Keith Code a number of episodes ago. And one of the points he made, because I was talking about motorcycle safety, you know, his opinion was he said, you know, safety is really kind of a, a term that gets thrown around, but it doesn't really mean anything. It's like, how do you define what's safe and what's not safe? And so he had mentioned from his point of view, the issue was, can the person control the motorcycle or not? Right. And, and so that's something that you can kind of teach. You know, you, how do you teach someone to be, quote unquote, safe? I don't know. But you can certainly teach them to control the motorcycle. Right. And to understand how it operates. So like with that is kind of where I'm coming from. I started seeing your content on YouTube. And, and I think one of the first things that caught my eye was uh, a, a video you had on suspension. Um, and, and in fact, I think it was the first one I saw was, and I, f I forget which bike it was, but you were demonstrating, you know, how to, how to measure suspension travel just out on the track, just using a zip tie, right? You put a zip tie on, mm -hmm. on, e on each fork leg, and that gives you an idea of when the rider goes out, you know, how much suspension travel are you getting and is there enough left for that level of rider or does it need to be adjusted, right? So that fascinated me. I was like, wow, this is really cool stuff. I have an engineering background, so I love all this technical kind of stuff. And like I said, I've been interested in, in kind of learning more. So that's kind of how this came about. That's why I reached out to you. I was like, hey, you know, and, and like also um, I saw the video, the interview you guys did. It was one of the Moto America races, I think. You stopped by the uh, ear Lean's trailer, right? If I, mm -hmm. I think I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, right? A lot of people say Olin's, which I used to say, right? But it's actually as, as a Swedish company, it's Erlins. Um, and if anyone wants, they can check it out on the internet. Just search for how do you pronounce Erlins, and and you'll find. That. Actually, it's cool. There's all these, all these different voice clips and stuff. But that that was really fascinating too. The way he kind of took you through, you know, what what they do on a weekend to help support the racers and and stuff like that. So. All right, so that, that's kind of enough of me kind of talking, I guess. At least it gives you a little flavor for, you know, where I'm coming from. So I, I guess the first question, I've got tons of questions for you, but and, and I know you, you've been riding a long time, and it sounds like you've been doing this for a long time. How did, how did Dave Moss Tuning come about? Like, like when, when did that get started, and what was the impetus? So in 1995, I couldn't play top-level rugby anymore, so I needed to find another sport and went through a lot of different sports. I'm a PE teacher, an English teacher by profession, um, from a distant life in a land far, far away. So I fell into uh, a friend of mine telling me that the motorcycle races were coming up and would I like to go. And that was in Portland, Oregon at the time. Uh, so I went with him to the track and relived a bit of my youth, um, and was curious and started talking to people and then, and then got more curious. And before I really was prepared, 
I had a Yamaha 1989 FCR 400 in boxes in my garage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I teamed up with the oldest guys I could find, fed them scotch and beer, and for a year sat and listened as to what did I need to do to make this work. And it was two things, tires and suspension. Mm-hmm. And that was repeated over and over and over and over. So I forced an internship with a suspension company in an, just outside of Portland, Oregon, called Circuit One. And then uh, one of the people involved with that, Dave Hodges, he and I then started GP Suspension, which is going to this day. It's based in Los Angeles right now uh, in Oxnard. So I would build and test and f- and make it fail, build, test, fail, build, test, fail by building my own suspension and then seeing what it would do, what it could do well and what it couldn't do. And then when I needed some information, would go online and read some technical data and then go back in. So I would say 90% of what I've learned is field training. Mm-hmm. Um and I've taken that forward uh, into the races. I built the bike. The very first day I got the bike, they made me lay on the floor and jumped all over me because I had nice shiny leathers and boots. And <laughs> then they made me lay the bike down on both sides to ruin the paint job because it was pristine perfect. Okay. And that was the most valuable lesson I've ever learned, ever because I was more concerned about myself and the motorcycle than the people I was about to race with. Um, that one moment changed everything for me in terms of perspective. And it's about the people around you. So learning all the time, I managed to be able to go ahead and win races, not because I'm a good rider, um, but because I really know how to set up a motorcycle. So people started asking, can you help me? Can you help me? And pretty soon, I was helping people way more than I was riding a bike. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how it all got started. Got it. So that kind of a natural progression. So like it, it sounds like you didn't like have this idea one day, hey, I'm going to start helping people with suspension on no. their motorcycles. It was just like something you, you did because you wanted to understand it, and you figured it out, and you applied it, and you succeeded. And then, and it's, it's interesting. I, I hear this kind of story frequently. Like people don't necessarily plan the direction, but they do something, they're good at it. Other people see it, you know, whether they're a motorcycle instructor or it's a racer or whatever. And people just start asking, you, you just find customers. It's like potential customers come to you. And then before you know it, you're just off in this direction running a business or something. Essentially, yeah. And realistically, though, to be honest, um, unless you're winning races, nobody cares. Mm hmm. So racing a motorcycle and being successful on it, especially when I got started in 95, gave me the credibility, apparently, to say, I know what I'm talking about. I don't believe those two correlate whatsoever, Mm -hmm. but perception is reality. So if you're winning and you're setting your own bike up and you're learning and changing, um, people's observation then turns into a different perspective. So. I've always made sure everything I've done, everything I've learned, um, even to current when some manufacturer brings out a brand new tire, 
I need to buy it, test it, figure it out, because then I can go ahead and help people who have that tire. Mm -hmm. So the learning never ends. And humans are amazing, unique individuals. So every day is a new challenge with a different answer. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, just out of curiosity, so when, when you played rugby, was that professional? Like, were you making a living that way or? Uh, I am old enough that it was still amateur at the time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I feel okay. kind of gypped on that one, but. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just the way that one rolls, right? Yeah, you just never know, right? You got to roll with the punches in life, I guess. Yeah. And then, uh, so how old were you when you started motorcycle racing? 45. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, cool. No, and, I'm sorry. 35. 35. Okay. 35 Still, I mean, but, uh, I mean, which is awesome, but by today's standards, right, I mean, well, actually, I guess that's a good question. Like, in, in the racers that you know, um, you know, are there any, in, in any of the series, you know, I follow MotoGP as much as I can, but more I've been following Moto America, just as a, the, the U.S. series and whatnot. But, like, do you know of any, like, top-level like currently top level racers who started at like, you know, mid twenties or older. No. Okay. And, uh, okay. And, and is, is that just a matter of, well, actually what, like in your opinion, like why, why is it that that can't work or it does, or it doesn't work? So I think one of the, one of the features that people struggle with is we're used to a motorcycle that today is called analog. It just is you and the bike, and you figure it out. Um, Modern motorcycles today involve a lot of uh, software in the background that is working, and you have to learn the software if you are going to leverage it. So rather than be basically right hand for brakes, left hand for clutch, left foot for shifting, right foot for rear brake pedal, uh, now you also have to bring in... RPM for the quick shifter, level of sensitivity, kill time, just on the quick shifter alone. Then you've got to match that to slipper clutch and the settings. And when that comes in, match to the fuel ECU map and fueling so that when you decelerate, you're putting fuel into the cylinder. So you're minimizing engine braking. Then you tune that individually per track and on and on and on this list goes. So for someone who was born, say, 75 to 85, we mm-hmm. still had realistically analog bikes. And now from 12 onwards, you have to know how to use the tools you're given, and all of those tools are in the ECU. Gotcha. So unless you're willing to learn those tools, you will never be able to progress to the level at which your entry for qualification has to be your familiarity and then exceptional leverage of those tools. Gotcha. So I, so I guess kind of it, it, it's almost maybe a chicken and egg kind of thing, right? Because at, at the top level, a rider has a team that's ha- handling that stuff, right? You know, you've got engineers and mechanics and, you know, guys, guys analyzing the data and whatever. But I guess to kind of get noticed and perform well enough as a, as a racer who doesn't have a lot of support and doesn't have a big team, you kind of have to understand that stuff. Like you kind of have to bootstrap and, and figure it out yourself so you can perform well enough that you can have a team that does all that for you, maybe. So the big deal there is a rider that knows how to set, set up a motorcycle has a much better chance of succeeding 
because at the track day level through to the club level through to national level if you can't give the crew chief the information they're looking for then you're not going to get through that setup to be able to leverage it and compete at the front similarly at national levels and at world level when you see the bike go into the pit box what's the first thing that happens to the bike is the data cable right a bunch of guys get around the rider and then they do the debrief but who makes the call the data engineer or the rider and so it's it will be a very very interesting segment to see how many riders at that level could ride an analog bike well and how many of those riders that when they go back into the box based on that box they're giving the debrief but does the data guy overrule the rider or does yeah. the rider overrule the data guy that's that's a fascinating conversation that we will never ever get to have right 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 <laughs> that's interesting when um when when you were racing did you race at the pro level at all um i raced in oregon uh then tried my luck in california because the AFM, American Federation of Motorcyclists, is the oldest racing club in the U.S. And if you, if you want a benchmark of whether you've got something, you go there. Okay. So I competed there at that time um, on my faithful FCR and then got offered a ride on a G- Yamaha GP250 bike um, and excelled on that. So I got to race two seasons the penultimate and the final two-stroke season with the then AMA. Um, so that was interesting. Loved the experience. Um, got, got asked to be a crew chief many years later um, and realized the, the politics, uh, the personalities, the egos, that's not something that I wanted to be a part of when I can help, like I did in '95 any single rider that asks me a question because that rider can then pay that forward to 20 others who can pay it forward to a hundred. Right. So I left the whole, I left the racing scene as a worker to this day. I still race because 18 to 24 year olds need to be shown the path forward. Yeah. Can't buy wisdom or racecraft. Right. So if, if they're diligent and attentive, they can learn from me. Um, and I've been very successful at racing the last few years, but, uh, helping people like you and I club races move on and then they disappear and try their luck at nationals is realistically going back to my teaching background of inspiring someone to do better through knowledge. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, that's cool. How, uh, how old are you now? Uh, what is it? 1959. Okay. All right, gotcha. Yeah, I'm I'm 63, so <laughs> you have hey, a couple. Uh, yeah, I got a couple of years on me. <laughs> best time of our lives right now. I, absolutely. You know, it, it's so interesting that it took me so long to discover motorcycling. Um, you, you know, I mean, I, I never regret things because what's the point, right? There's you know, sure. there's today, there's today, and there's the future. You know, I I do think had I found it earlier, my 20s or something, I would have you know enjoyed it for that many more years and. I don't know who who knows. Maybe I would have ended up racing or something like that. But uh, it, it's interesting because I've recently had an opportunity to interview a couple of Moto America racers. You know, Kyle Wyman and Braden Ort, and uh, also uh, um, 
Chris Bays, which has been really cool. And it's kind of funny in talking with them and just prepping, you know, and, and looking at the, uh, the Moto America rules specifications for the classes and whatever. I was like, Oh, look at this. The, the cutoff age is 55 years old. I missed it. I missed it by a year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Like I, I actually, I'm interested in trying track days. I have not done that yet. Um, but maybe, maybe next season going to start giving that a shot. Cause I would like to, um, I don't know, I guess just have an opportunity to, to ride in an environment where I don't have to worry about all those distractions of traffic and rules and laws. And, you know, well, there's obviously rules on a track, right? But to, to, to have the opportunity to just focus more on the riding and the technique and not have to have whatever it is. You know, I, I don't like I live on Long Island, right, which is part, part of New York and it's just outside of New York City, east of New York City. And um, I, I mean, probably. Honestly, I'd have to say, I never thought of it before, but probably at least 60% of my attention is on the traffic around me, the cars and stuff like that, right? Just because there's so much going on, you know, and, and if you want to be safe, you just have to do that, you know, whereas on a track, at least everyone's going in the same direction and they're pretty much in the same program, <laughs> you know, so. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, look, you know, you get yahoos anywhere, right? And you get people yeah. who who push it and are kind of wild and crazy and don't use their, you know, their head too much. But, uh, anyway, so yeah, so I guess that's another reason I was interested in talking to you because I know that you do track days and, and things like that. So actually maybe we could talk a little bit. So we were, we were going to do the interview last week and then it sounds like you had a little bit of a mishap with your Suzuki bandit. So, uh, yeah, the retired debeated itself from the rim. Okay. After a piece of metal from a truck that was constructing gutters, yeah. deposited that on the road and I ran it over. So it was a catastrophic blowout. Wow. 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 And fortunately, this is where being old is really beneficial. Mm -hmm. You just giggle and bring the bike to a stop. Right. As a youth, you may well have frozen, locked up and gone in, gone off the road instantly or across the lane. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting experience and, and it's one of the reasons why I don't ride a whole lot on the street anymore, even for enjoyment. Um, I much, much prefer to go and have a ride on the track. If it's just me having fun, if it's me coaching somebody, um, if it's me as part of a program where I'm teaching my suspension school on what works, how it works, and why it works, mm -hmm. I'd much rather go to the track um, and I, I will give anyone that comes to the track that I've met a free day with me. Oh, cool. So they can then go away from that track experience and go tell their friends about how cool it was. Right. And to keep the stupid stuff off limits, period, because on the road, you don't have a prayer. But at least at the track, if there is a mishap, for whatever reason, medical is right there. You're getting care in a couple minutes. Um, everybody's going the same way. Nothing's coming across the road to you. There's no debris. I fell off on a piece of toast once. There's stuff like that that just doesn't matter anymore. So you can go to the track. But whenever I talk to people about it, I just say, look, it is a closed road that is a loop that you get to learn. It is not a race track. It has nothing to do with racing. Right. So we get BMW GSs, we'll get Harleys, we'll get Honda Runes, we'll get everybody out there to come to the track. Because as motorcyclists, the one thing that we 
want to do is put that throttle to the stop and let her rip. Right. And on a closed road with everybody going the same way and lots of time for you to do that, everybody needs to go to the track. Even if it's to go look and see what's happening, go. And at least dip your feet in there and have the experience and see what it feels like because it will be an enormous revelation and it will be significant benefit to you and your street riding. Sure, absolutely. No, it totally makes sense. Now, the, the, the incident with the bandit, right, and your ability to handle that without it becoming a disaster, I'm guessing has a lot to do with your experience as well, right? I mean, your you know, riding skill and, and knowing how to handle the bike, right? Yeah, a, age for sure helps. But Well, age for sure helps because your reaction time to use an American word, sucks. Mm. <laughs> right. So that's the good thing that's in your favor, right? <laughs> right. So you but don't yeah. do anything rash, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, overcompensate. The one thing that a motorcycle really responds to is you doing something that evolves. If you want the motorcycle to react, generally the motorcycle will win. So nothing in your input into a motorcycle should occur. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it started moving and me letting it move and then bringing it to a safe stop was all part of the fact that this situation that it's evolving, I can gain control of, not I have to get control of it now. Gotcha. And that's where a lot of road riders, especially in their first three to five years, fall into that pitfall of either target fixation or a snap decision to stop something from happening. And when you get the opportunity to smack the handlebars, when you're riding in a straight line at 60 and the bike straightens itself right out and you left there going, Oh my God, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. And understanding gyro and effect and that the bike wants to go straight and it wants to stand up all of a sudden. Now you're starting to understand and appreciate the physics involved, but how, safe a motorcycle can be in most circumstances obviously not all in hitting a rock or something and the chassis getting out of line it will straighten itself out most of the time the question is can you let it and our fear response or our survival instinct especially on a bike that has not been set up for the individual then that's when it gets worse. It amplifies initially, and that creates that absolute desire and need just to stop it. And that's right. when it all goes wrong. Okay. And I guess that's in part where you get into kind of the feedback loop kind of thing, right? Is it's like the, 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 the rider is not letting the bike do what the bike needs to do to self-correct, and they're putting in an input that's coming back the wrong way and then they're continuing to do that bad thing, right? It's because it sounds like in part that's where tank slappers and thing can come from, right? Yeah. Where, because I've heard, you know, an issue can be, you know, the rider track or whatever, they're coming through a corner and the bike is starting to stand up and they've got weight or pressure on the bars, and particularly like if it's a wheelie, right? If the, or if the front wheel is, is unweighted, which is likely when you're accelerating. And then if you're, not just letting the handlebars do what they need to do, but you're pulling on them because you're not controlling your body properly, then you, you, ca- you actually cause these things in some cases. Not only um, have them continue, you make them amplify. Right, right. So, again, that's where setting a bike up for the individual eliminates almost all of those risks. 
because the, handle, the handling issues tend to not appear violently suddenly. So mm-hmm. you get a warning and things are moving and the bike's communicating with you, but it's not the back of the hand Italian style to wake you up. Right. <laughs> gotcha. So if you're paying attention, you get, you get a warning. That sounds the like. bike always talks to you. Yeah. The part there is, can you recognize it? So if you set the bike up correctly for you as a human, that communication builds in volume. Mm-hmm. So if you are really going out of your performance envelope, that's where things get ugly quickly. If right. you get uncomfortable and just push the performance envelope a little bit and the bike talks to you in a slightly different way, your conscious mind is alert and aware, but it doesn't trigger the panic response. So whenever I'm coaching people, new riders, uh, in particular, it's let's go through this. Now let's keep it at this pace. I know you're a tad uncomfortable, but if you complete the task, then was it successful? So it goes back to being a kid when you're put in front of the blackboard to write lines after school. Right. By, by the fifth time you're doing that, you're having three conversations of writing in a perfectly straight line. Mm-hmm. So repetition creates understanding, and understanding creates confidence, and confidence creates relaxation. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the, or maybe two of the major things I took away in reading uh, Keith Code's Twist of the Wrist one, he talks about survival responses, kind of what you're alluding to, I think, where, you know, something happens with the bike or a situation and the person panics instead of kind of thinking it through. And then the, the other thing was learning how to train your attention so that because basically you kind of create time, you know, one, by looking further out out at what's happening, you know, just because, especially when you're traveling at, at fast speeds, you buy yourself more time, which kind of allows yourself to relax and then respond appropriately, knowing you're going to handle the situation instead of, like you said, you panic and you just cause a situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's cool stuff. Um, so a, a, another question I had for you. So I forget you. You had posted a video where you were talking with or helping a gentleman who I think had a Super Duke twelve fifty, um, and and in the video you you mentioned something to the effect of I forget the exact statement, but something like seventy something percent of of accidents or maybe it was even fatalities are caused by you know someone cornering effectively with the front suspension not set up properly, you know where it's fully compressing. Kind of was was the understanding I got. You, you know the video I'm talking about? Yeah. So when I travel the world, I do a lot of work with police departments mm-hmm. so that they can go out and do community work, which is have you had your bike set up? Because yeah. almost every fatality internationally is loss of control of the front going into a corner. Now, obviously, there's many factors involved in that. And over the years of travel and working with police departments, They've come to realize, because I've set their bikes up, Mm -hmm. how critical that is to succeeding in a crisis and getting through it versus everything failing at once and then there's no recovery. So something as simple as tire pressure. What should the tire pressure be when it's uh, 45 degrees Celsius day and you're riding versus 108 degree day? What should that be? What should it be seasonally? And so we work through stuff like that 
because one of the most misunderstood parts of a motorcycle is tires. Mm. Okay. So then, so that, that statistic that you quoted, is that, is that just based on your observation of things? Is that based on just like, that's police department statistics. Statistics. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. Now the, the reason I ask is because I, that the video really caught my attention. And again, like I said, in part because I've gotten very interested in motorcycle design and dynamics and wanting to understand more, but that statistic just totally made sense to me. And it's not like I'm any kind of expert yet on understanding motorcycles and suspensions, but I could think with what you were saying. And I was like, yeah, I could see how that could happen. You know, someone goes hard into a turn, they compress the suspension, and then there's some kind of situation, there's bumps or whatever that's going to cause a loss of traction. And if there's nothing left to absorb, you know, whatever the situation is, yeah, guess what? You're going to go down. And so, so I posted that on my Facebook page and I was like, you know, wow, this is something to be aware of, you know, and I didn't make any statement about where the statistic came from other than in your video or whether it was correct or not. And I just had a couple people respond going, oh, that can't be true. That's nonsense. Um, so that's, why, <laughs> that's why I want to ask you, because it's like, OK, well, there's the answer of, wh of where it comes from. So I can uh, I can I can go back to my Facebook post and say, OK, everybody, listen, listen to this this podcast episode. <laughs> there's, there's there's your answer. But so yeah. can I ask you, Chris, what your tire pressure is on your bike? Yeah. So good. So good question. So the answer is on the Z900 RS, if I'm not mistaken, like what the manual says is 36 PSI front, 42 rear. Now, okay. now just what you said just a little while ago about do you adjust the pressure based on the ambient temperature? I was like a light bulb went off. I'm like, I, I never thought about that. Honestly, um, I, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, pressures change, right? Because I know that with a vehicle, like, you know, um, you know, and yeah, right. Because with a car, you know, the, the seasons change and, you know, I'm pretty good about checking tire pressure and whatever. Although in a four wheel vehicle, in my opinion, it's not not as critical. I'm not saying don't do it, but it's not as critical as with a two wheel vehicle. Um, but I'm accustomed to seeing like, like in the fall and then the winter, you know, you have to put more air in. Right. Um, motorcycle. I, I do the similar thing, you know, I don't check pressure every time I ride, uh, but at least every other time I ride. But to your point, I've never thought about, hey, you know, it's summertime and it's 100 degrees now versus 70 degrees. So, so I guess, so what, like in your experience and what's, what's the variation there? Like, is that something people should think with? So that pressure has been the same for 30 years. Okay. For every bike. So there's the first question mark. Um, the second part about that is, if you think back to, say, a 2005 Suzuki GSX-R1000, hugely popular motorcycle that ran 36-42. Right. Those tires are extinct. Okay. They're gone. And we are in a absolute Eden of motorcycle tires at this present time, you couldn't ask for better technology to be available to you in single, double, and triple compounds for the road. Right. So if you're using a sticker on a bike from 2005 that says 3642 on tires that are from 2019, should you scratch your head a little and maybe think about that for a minute? Mm -hmm. So... The one thing about that, that that I can't seem to get people to do is pull tires off the tire rack at the, 
premises where they go to actually sit on them. Hmm. Some tires at 200 pounds unmounted will hold you up just perfectly fine. And some others will immediately drop to the floor. So the one thing that's come an enormous way from bias ply tires is tire carcass. Okay. Some, some are hard and some are soft. Well, if you've got a very hard carcass tire, do you need 3642? Could you have 3434? Or let's flick, flick it around another way. As small bikes are becoming extremely popular. If right. you had, for example, a Yamaha R3, let's switch brands. That weighs nothing. And if you put a 120-pound rider on it with a hard carcass tire at 3642, They'll be seeing a chiropractor. They will definitely need a dentist, and their urine may turn red. Right, right, right. Only right. because of the tire, not the suspension. So while we have an enormous amount of choice, more than we've ever had possible in tires, sometimes we're paralyzed by choice or we're paralyzed by information. So if there are 1,150 genes that you can buy, yeah. you're just going to buy whatever. So there are so many tires to buy, it's much easier to go buy the sticker or the book that says 3642. But in the real world, what is stopping you from finding your own pressure that is appropriate to your road, your speed, and your climate seasonally? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, is, is that something that's fairly straightforward for you know, a non-technical person to learn? Sure. Like, yeah. So you start, let's say, with your current bike, your RS. Right. Fairly heavy motorcycle, right? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah, about if, 500 pounds. Yeah, if you're an ADH person, you need a hard carcass tire because your brain's going to get all the stimulation it needs. If you're fairly mellow and you want to find the person that's cutting the grass because you can smell it, then you're going to have a soft carcass tire because that allows you to look around and not be inundated with information. So if you've got a, a light bike, a soft carcass tire is pretty good. If you want to commute, a soft carcass tire is pretty good. So you start off at 34.34, and ideally, if you ride far enough, your gain from cold to hot should be 3 to 4 PSI. So you can physically check that with a gauge. Mm-hmm. Okay. That tells you that your tire is getting hot. You can stop, put the bike on the side stand, and touch the, touch the tire with your hand. It's hot. Well, you've got grip. So tire, modern tires, especially road tires, are silica-based, so they heat up very, very quickly. So after 30 miles, maybe 50 miles, you will have heated up that tire to the point where it's consistent. So touch it. Measure gain. It's really easy to do. And then you can build your seasonal pressures based on a data point. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. So the the three to four psi change that you mentioned is is that kind of like on a street bike? Is that kind of the range of of what what you get if you've got proper pressure to start with? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you've gotcha. got forty two psi, how small is the contact patch? Right. So how much heat can you generate? So mm-hmm. is it going to get the tire hot? Okay. So the next layer deep there is a little bit more analysis. Yeah. But at the same time, it's pretty logical or there's quite a bit of common sense, which I don't have an ounce of. So at that point, 
you can figure it out, right? Right. And everybody needs something to latch onto that gives them perspective. Some are tactile, and that's temperature. Others are numerical. We'll get a gauge, and all of a sudden now we are we have full control in optimizing entire life, entire temperature to give us grip. So we can leverage the product that we bought to its potential. Gotcha. Okay, totally makes sense. So then, in in terms of what you mentioned, you know, about making sure that a bike is set up correctly for a person. So if someone comes to you is like, "Hey, Dave, you know, can you help me get this thing set up right?" What what are the other kind of things that you you would you know guide them through or take a look at? So the first thing I'll do is ask them a question, and that question generally runs along this line. I challenge you to. The next time you rent a car, open the door and not touch a damn thing with the seat and the steering wheel when you get in it. You're going to do it? <laughs> well, that's right. ridiculous. It's, what are you talking about? <laughs> but right. how many motorcycles have you had before this? And how many times have you set up each motorcycle? And nine times out of ten, there's it's too much fear. And there's no trust in changing the settings. The factory knows best. They make these things. I'm not touching anything. It's staying at these settings. So the next question is, okay, he's six foot three. You're five foot two. How are you both supposed to fit on that bike properly? Because you're not adjusting the seat and the steering wheel in the rental car, right? So how many bikes have you purchased, loved, ridden, then it hurts, ridden less, it hurts more, and sold, and done the 100-year cycle? Because up until 2000, nothing was adjustable. Uh-huh. So we we just shut up and we bore the brunt of that fatigue and pain. Right. And that's carried through to the current generation. So now it's a case of I have to get you comfortable on that motorcycle just as you have to get comfortable with the seat and steering wheel. Until I've done that step, you're just going to be in pain. That's going to create fatigue and it's going to be distract you from having actions evolve. Actions, because you're in pain and fatigue, will occur. And that could be fatal. So let's see if we can get you comfortable. And if not, for example, your clutch lever is not adjustable. Right. Will you go buy an adjustable clutch lever to fit your hand? Because you have fingers that are longer than your palm. Or you have fingers that are shorter than your are you willing to start there instead of a flash DCU and a power commander or a map and a pipe and an air filter and all the other nonsense? Right. So realistically, we're just a bunch of massacres. <laughs> that's an interesting way. To, no, I, that's, that's an interesting point. And, and, you know, as you're talking, it's making me wonder, cause uh, you know, I take the Z 900 RS for, for weekend trips, not frequently, but you know, I, I do do it. And, I can put some luggage on it, and, and that's a thing too, right? Because carrying additional weight, I should probably be thinking with what needs to be adjusted on the suspension that I haven't done yet. I mean, fortunately, I haven't had any problems, but it is something I need to take a look at. But, you know, after a weekend of riding, particularly if I'm doing long highway riding, like after after hour, hour and a half, I do start to get uncomfortable. Now, some of it I've realized was due to death grip on the handlebars, right? Because sometimes I get numbness and things in the hands. So I think it was in reading Keith Code stuff and maybe some stuff that this guy uh, Fast Eddie does with his Moto Jitsu. I realized it was important not to be having, you know, a tense grip on the handlebars that it can just have a light touch. So that that helped. 
Um, but then I get things, you know, kind of in, in the groin, you know, maybe in the back a little bit. And so I'm kind of looking at it going, okay, well maybe, you know, obviously this thing's like, you can change saddle and whatever, but you know, maybe whatever the suspension's too hard or it's whatever, like things I hadn't even thought of before. So have you checked that your handlebar is actually perfectly centered for you? No, no, no. I, so I, there's I, the first cause of pain. Okay. Sure. So have somebody stand behind you while you hold the handlebars and check the gap between your elbow and torso and also check the height of your elbow across your body compared to the other arm. Mm -hmm. Now, if the re that's a long reach from the steering stem to the tank because it's a classic retro bike. Right. So have you moved the handlebars forwards and backwards to fit your spine and arm length? No, but good point. So... I guarantee you, you're off center, 100%. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guarantee you, you could move those handlebars backwards and forwards and find the sweet spot. But then you've got to go ahead and position the levers so your forearm, wrist, and palm are all in a straight line. Right. Gotcha. Until you cure the ergonomics of that bike for yourself, mm -hmm. who was it built for? Right. It was built for... Whatever, Joe, Joe Average or, or whatever. It was right? built it's for a, no one. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, it's sure. Built, literally built for no one. Right. So that's the main fight I have with riders, especially new riders. Well, the factory built it. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, if the factory built a car and you never moved the seat and the steering wheel, does that make any sense at all? Well, no. So why don't you change the ergonomics? And the other piece of that puzzle is... As you age, you become asymmetric. Mm. If you're asymmetric because of injuries, is there anything wrong with having the handlebars off-center and a different position so that you are comfortable? Right. right, right. No. But we, we are limited to convention because we are unwilling to ask questions and even harder, do something that will create a difference than in reality... Even on a road ride, with braking, halves the braking distance because everything's lined up correctly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Just something as simple as that. You know what? what what's what's actually? I'm really glad we've had this conversation, right? I mean, it, you've answered a lot of things I was curious about, and I think the, the listeners are going to benefit a lot. But I'm kind of it's interesting, right? Because I do computer programming for a living, and you know, one of the things that we talk about is user interface or like man machine interface, right? It's like, how, how do you build a system that works as well for the person who's using it so that they can use it effective, efficiently and whatever. And in all honesty, I never, I knew motorcycles can be set up and adjusted, right? But I never thought about that concept, but kind of really what you're talking about is that man machine interface, you know, with this two-wheel vehicle that we all love riding so much that we feel this connection with and that gives us this spirit this this whatever spiritual release and whatever and you know the sense of freedom but how many people really have that connection that physical connection set up properly so the part there is i don't care if you're commuting i don't care if you ride on the weekends i don't care how you use your motorcycle but in a crisis situation if it isn't isn't set to your body, your hand, everything correct, 
there's so much time wasted in trying to avoid what you're doing that the accident could be avoided. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the local police group here at Fairfield, they have their autocross incredible skills on Harleys and BMWs and Kawasaki's ripping around cones. So I'm watching one rider, I'm looking at him and I'm seeing him struggle. So he came back in and went, give me that clutch lever. I moved it ever so slightly and changed the gap to the lever. And he took quite a bit of time off his next test. Mm-hmm. And he, en- he ended up winning his class because he had no wasted time in using the clutch. And he had a 90% reduction in energy expenditure while doing all the technical maneuvers around the course. Wow. He was utterly blown away and immediately went home and went to work on his own motorcycle because like anything else, it's fine talking and putting stuff in the ether, but unless you are willing to try something and take that leap of faith and do something which yields a positive result, it's much easier to be comfortable, which means do nothing. Right, 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 right. Right. Writing is an awesome, amazing experience. But if it could be 200, 400, 1,000% better, why not strive for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so you've got some so, homework then. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I, I didn't realize I was going to have so much work after this discussion. <laughs> oh, no. All you've wait, got wait. is handlebars and levers. I mean, yeah. that's your start. Right? right. And you right, can right. report back to your listeners exactly what um, you found out. Changed. Right. 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 Because now, especially as a new rider, the number one issue with new riders is they're discombobulated because they don't fit the motorcycle. If you buy a decent road bicycle, it's a 90-minute biomechanical fitment period that right. is miserable because it has to be. But somewhere along the line, street or road motorcycles just never went there. Dirt bikes all the time, constant. Mm-hmm. You have to fit that bar. There's three widths of motorcycle bars available for dirt bikes. You have to find the right one and all the stuff that goes with it. But road bikes, treated like cars. Get on it, go. That's my job is to try and inspire people to ask the question, could it be better? Sure. Are, are you aware of or have you worked with any motorcycle dealerships who were interested in doing that kind of thing? Because it's something I've talked about on past episodes, like not not to the degree of understanding of what we're talking about here. But I have talked about the fact that a motorcycle can be fitted you know, to a rider and that it's something that should be done. My experience, and it's interesting because like I have this Kawasaki Vulcan S, right? And it's not like a huge amount of adjustability, but they have this ergo fit system, right? Where basically there's three, three choices of handlebars, seats, and then, you know, foot controls so that there's at least some variability in how the bike can be set up. And it's supposed to be included with the purchase of that bike is the dealer fitting it to you with those proper components, you know, included in the cost of the motorcycle. And there are dealers that sell that motorcycle that don't even seem to be aware one that that system exists or two that they're supposed to be setting it up that way, right. For the, for the customer. Um, but, but so I've mentioned, you know, that people should look for a dealer and, and granted in some cases, like my girlfriend bought an Indian scout 60 and she wanted the handlebar changed out because I guess, I guess that's not your favorite kind of motorcycle <laughs> just from your expression. Um, yeah, good. What's your, what's your thought on it? Uh, 
several years ago, I got a BMW dealer because they have a lot of demo bikes Yeah. to bring me in for two days. I got three weight categories, gave them all the tables, all the settings for all their demo fleet, plus asterisks on each weight category that if you were on this bike going for a demo ride, it would feel like this because to fix it, we can change the springs, we can do this. So that was all part of the upsell. The demo to sale rate went up by 80% in the first month mm-hmm. because of the education they were giving the customer and the real-world experience the customer was getting during the ride. Right. So in answer to your question, why don't dealerships do this? And as your experience has shown, some don't even know this procedure exists. It's too much work. Yeah. Well, now, that, that's, you're changing that's... things from what's on the, on the showroom floor. Um, there's a risk there, right? Right. I don't think so, but deal- yeah, dealerships I, believe it. Right. And and that's, I guess, why dealerships will stick with the manufacturer. You know, right. So like Indian, you know, you look on the wall and they've got all the different handlebars and all the different seats and whatever. So I guess that's quote unquote safe for the dealer to go with that stuff because Indian said it's okay, right, kind of thing. Um, but anyway, the, the point I was just getting to with her, so she wanted different handlebars just for the reach and whatever, and it cost, you know, they, they were up front. It's like, okay, it's not included. You got to pay extra, which she did. Um, and I, I know the bike has other things that need to be set up properly. Like she, she's petite, right? And she seems to handle the bike okay, but it's got a heavy, heavy clutch. Like I, I don't even like the clutch. It's, it's too, too heavy a spring action, you know? And so I think that's, that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, but, but I guess the point I was just getting to is my suggestion to people, and I don't know how possible this is because i haven't surveyed all the dealers but find a dealer who's at least at least willing to like work with you and be like okay we know how to change some things to fit this bike to you better instead of just you know here's the bike drive it out you know drive it out of the showroom and and, then good luck with it which is what seems to happen a lot of the time um you know and and the other thing too i have made the point to people is it's like if you know if because my understanding is and i've never been in the business but new motorcycles don't have a huge markup so there's not a lot of money being made and so if you're pushing hard to get the best bargain and the dealer's making very little money on it and you know you're not even going to buy extra parts and stuff to put on that chances are they're not going to want to spend a lot of time helping you get the bike set up you know it's going to be like good good luck you know and (laughs) We hope you enjoy it. Yeah, when I was the GM of a Yamaha dealership in uh, Redwood City, all of that was bundled into the finance. Okay. And the bike, the bike left with the owner perfect. Okay. And that was the way to get it done, mm-hmm. because every bike left the dealership as good as it could be. And yeah, I have to come up with an extra two thousand dollars to make this bike fit me. No. Yeah, but if you had another fifteen dollars a month to on, pay, you would do sure. It. Right. Yeah. So the that being rolled into the purchase is one thing, and that's easily doable. But the question is, when you buy a used bike, obviously yeah. that can't happen. So then it's a question of where does your very hard-earned money get spent? And the first thing it should get spent on, honestly, is ergonomics. Sure. No, absolutely. Totally makes sense. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the different things that you offer. So, you know, I know I've, I've looked at your, your website. You've got, like I said, I found you because of your YouTube content. There's some really good, just free YouTube videos there. So I know you have a lot of stuff that you provide for free. And then you've got like a monthly, monthly or annual subscription service, right? So people can kind of 
get access to more detailed content. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. So uh, the website is geared to riders of all ages, all types of bikes, irrespective, realistically, of the knowledge that you have. The goal here is to give you the methodology in which you can attack one thing at a time. So there's a series of videos with me in front of the trailer, which are all free, explaining tiny concepts one at a time, which it really gives you the foundation of where we're going, which is a journey of yeah. making your motorcycle your own. So you can leverage all the free content, which starts you in that journey. Um, we're almost up to a thousand pieces of content now between podcast, video and articles. So depending on the level of complexity you're looking for, if you want, this is a spoon, you use a spoon this way. That's there through to barometric pressure and air density with tire temperature at a track temperature of 140 Celsius, 140 Fahrenheit. That's there as well. So I try and cover a lot of bases to help people overcome the lack of knowledge. And instead of being begrudging and saying, well, I don't know, being a glass half full type person <laughs> and leveraging what's there for the website. So then if they're interested, they can email me and I will give them custom settings for them and their motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Literally unique to them, including tire pressure and geometry. You can come out to events that I attend and have me set up the bike if it's in your area or region. Um, there's an online school you can do. There's a trackside school you can do. And if you want coaching for racing, track day riding, or street riding, I can provide them as well. So I'm trying to give people most options possible for them to begin their journey. Some like to read, some like to listen, some like to watch. Right. So providing that variety of content, I'm hoping that inspires somebody to go, you know what, I'm going to change my tire pressure today and see what happens. Or I am going to, instead of buying that exhaust and making my bike 220 horsepower, I'm going to find a clutch lever that fits my hands so it doesn't hurt after 30 minutes. Right, 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 right. Cool. <laughs> or I've got a new bike, so let's go and see what this thing will do. No. <laughs> right. Stop. God damn it. How yeah. about I got a new bike. Let's, let's get it set up to me first, and then I'll go for a ride. Sure. That is the biggest cultural change that is so, so hard to do because it's – we want to go ride. Right, right. And, and, and I understand that because, you know, even I have to admit for myself, you know, given the choice between spend time cleaning the bike or go for a ride, <laughs> I'll, I'll go for a ride. Now, you know, where cleaning the bike is not a safety issue, okay, that's fine, right? You know, I do, you know, I, I will make sure I service the chain frequently and, you know, and that kind of thing. But it, but it is a good point to not be in a rush to just go out and ride, particularly because you want to enjoy this thing, right? And to your point, I mean... And obviously it depends, you know, because some people may just kind of accidentally be, you know, the bike may be somewhat suitable for them, right? Just because of the, the their size and their weight and whatever. But it's not going to be the same as having it set up really, for, like you said, to make it their bike, literally their bike. Cause, and it's funny, right? Because we're so accustomed to making it our bike by putting the chrome bits on and the cool paint job and the flame. And, and that's, that's cool. I, I get it. I, I understand that the aesthetics part of it and the pride. But I, I think... You know, 
whatever. What I'm getting out of this, right, is it, that 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 pales in comparison to having it your bike because it fits you, and because right. you can control this bike to the you know as good as you can at, for your ability level, and you're just going to enjoy it so much more, and it is going to be safer and etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this, Chris: What's sure. your engine oil service interval for you as a human with your bike that you love and adore is it what the book says or what it, you choose it's what the book says okay yeah if there's no dot for a fork oil service would you leave your engine oil in if there was no dot there probably not right yeah, yeah. so if there's no dot for fork oil and it here's yeah. something for yeah. you to ponder. You're riding around on a lava lamp after a certain amount of miles. Mm-hmm. Because the oil is thick, old, and cold, and then gets to be super thin when it's hot. So the handling of the motorcycle is awful to start, kind of evolves into something rideable temporarily in the moment, and then goes back to horrible mm-hmm. again. And if you have adjustments... Or, for example, you have preload and rebound on your bike. Mm-hmm. You could turn that rebound screw clockwise every 1,000 to 1,500 miles and have that front end work perfectly. Okay. But that's not in the owner's manual. And right. try as hard as I might to ask OEMs, can I give three data tables of weight and settings as a baseline for your excellent product so that they can enjoy it even more. The answer is always no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for $27. And if you're relatively mechanical, you pour it out and you put the new stuff back into the same volume you took out. Right. So suspension servicing is often missing from the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting conversation when you look at how often you change your engine oil, does that make any sense? Right. Good point. Just another conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely, well, I, yeah, I hope, I know you've given me a lot of things to think about, so I'm hoping the listeners will also pick up some things to think about. Um, and, you know, that's it's just interesting because, and, and may, I guess it is as I educate myself more, about riding technique and you know how motorcycles operate, how suspensions work. I, I've just become more and more aware because I hang out. Like last night, I went to the local cycle gear. They have a every once a month they have a, a bike night. People hang out, and there's a broad selection of bikes and people at different experience levels and whatever. And I, I've just become very attuned to the fact that there not everyone, but there are many people. They're attracted to motorcycling. They go out and they buy a bike. They do all that customization, you know, all the cool stuff and the, the leather and they put some chrome bits on and whatever. And they go ride the thing and they're tooling around 70, 80 miles an hour or whatever on a weekend trip, not really understanding good riding technique, how the motorcycle operates, you know, how you control it properly. So that, that's why I think this kind of conversation is really good. And, and, you know, what you're doing is obviously extremely valuable. Even, even if someone listens to this and they go, hmm, maybe there's something for me to learn. You know, like something, something for me to think about here. So the piece, the piece there for your excellent point is if you're trying to learn skills, but you're fighting the bike, yeah. can you learn the skills? Certainly not effectively and maybe not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Because our best and worst quality as a human is adaption. Right. 
So there's a part there. I'm going to go to the track. Well, a lot of guys will see you at the track, certainly here. They'll bring their bike over to me and go, I'm paying for it, set his bike up. And the, the rider's going, what? You're the liability. We're going to go fast. Your bike's not even remotely ready for that yet. You mm-hmm. think it is, but it isn't. So we're taking care of you because oh, wow. we don't need you falling down or running into us or having an issue. So when you go, for example, to California Superbike School, if you're using your own bike, can you get the most out of what they're teaching you if that bike hasn't been set up for you so that in that moment you can maximize the return on your considerable investment that you're putting into your learning curve with your motorcycle? Yeah, yeah. Just another, again, a different perspective. One of the hard things and you've hit on it numerous times, is that we love our motorcycles. So the one thing we can't do is detach. Yeah. We cannot detach and we don't get a proper perspective. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I've yep, proved yep. that in classes all over the world. It's, it's pretty funny to watch. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's interesting, right? Because I guess, because there is, and I've talked about this too, there's something about motorcycling, and that's true of other sports too, I guess. It's not just all rational, right? There's a... There's a, to, to me, I've talked. There's a spiritual aspect. There's an emotional aspect. There's a lot of human aspects that are involved, and so I could even see people not even not even as a conscious thing, but it's like this is my bike. It's the one I picked. I love this bike. It's perfect. Like, you know, what? Why would you have to change anything? This is my baby. This is my bike. But you know, <laughs> so ob- obviously is, things to look at, right? Yeah. Well, the longer you own a bike, generally the quicker you go on it Uh for longer. Yes. So how about you're leaving the motorcycle behind you because you're asking more of it, but you're doing nothing to help it sustain your learning curve. There's another detachment and a different perspective. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we have a lot to think about, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) I got to, I got to thank you for that. It's been, it's, it's, it's really been awesome. I know, uh, you've got an appointment coming up, so, uh, but we're at about an hour, so I don't want to extend over too long. Um, so people, if people want to contact you, what's the, what's the best way? Just go to your website. Yep. Just go to the website. There's an ask Dave feature there. You can go ahead and email me direct. Um, so that's, that's the easiest way. And again, so you can talk to this. I'm going to send you settings for your bike. Awesome. I'm going to send you a series of questions so okay. that you, you can speak to it. Because my language, honestly, being the person I am, is marketing. Mm. Your experience is undeniable truth. Right. So in giving you the settings, in letting you ride it, you can simply... Just talk about your experience and what that really was for you. Sure. And I'll give you three different things to do that you can do one in sequence to the other. And at that point, as I ask everybody that goes through this process, it's a huge leap of faith to move away from the factory settings because Mm. all you know is all you know. But if something could be better, why is there fear over it being better? Yeah. And you've got you've to put that first step and you've got to put that foot down to experience it. And unfortunately, 
80% of people will never take that step and plant that first foot. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a shame. So one person at a time. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'm All right. game. So let me, ha- let me have it. <laughs> no, so and, I, re- and I think that's a great idea because I will, I will, you know, I'll continue to, you know, just mention it episode, you know, what episode to episode now and again, just what, what I'm experiencing. So people know, like you said, they have my perspective on it in addition to your perspective on it. Right. So, and then yeah. as soon as that happens, that you have that epiphany and revelation as a new rider, then everything from this point on gets better. Mm-hmm. Right. Older riders are really, really hard to convert. They're really hard to convert. Um, so that's, that's a different conversation and a, a different battle. Yeah, sure. Because if they've grown up riding from the 80s to now, they've spent 30 years on stuff that can be adjusted realistically. Mm-hmm. And so they are so good at adaptation. They can ride anything. Right, right. So the value value proposition just isn't there for them. Yeah. So let me let me ask you this: um, Is there kind of a disconnect? Because to your point, right, that that bikes have become so much more adjustable over, well, since when would you say mid mid nineties? It started 90s? being adjustable two thousand, and everything went really mad. Okay. And extremely sophisticated sophisticated after 2010 right so the the design and the engineering is obviously there right that that's where at least some i mean obviously you know there, there's aftermarket parts that you may need to put on you maybe need to put different springs right depending on your weight and the motorcycle whatever but there's a lot right that what's built into the motorcycle that adjustability is engineered in so the fact that it the capability is there and then it's really not even communicated to the customer, right? And like you said, in the user manual, it doesn't necessarily talk about any of this stuff. There's like some, there's a disconnect there, you know? And, and so I don't I wanna, know, is it, do you think, is it a legal thing? You know, is, is it manufacturers afraid of litigation? Is it, you know, what is it? Is it the marketing guys aren't motorcyclists, so they don't, you know, really care? <laughs> yeah, that's a great conversation. So it, Here's a good one for your listeners. How many manufacturers on any any kind of motorcycle produced have ever introduced to the public the test rider the bike was developed around? Mm. Yeah. So there's one. Yeah. The next one is you were talked about it at the start of the show with the cable tie on the fork. Yep. What's dirty, what's clean in the rear shock? because there is a shock shaft there that you can see most right. of the time. Yeah. And if you put a cable tie in the fork leg, you can see how much travel you're using, but it has no context if you haven't marked where the travel ends. So the hardest thing I can get a new rider to do is see how much travel they have used in their suspension by using their eyes. Right. And that, when Keith's talking about safety... You know, how hard are you pushing that bike? Well, if you're super light and you're using 25% of the suspension, you get beat to death. Mm-hmm. That's far more risky than someone that's heavier and is using almost all of it. Right. But if all you had to do was use your eyes and look and see what's dirty and what's clean. Yeah. Well, take a look at the cable tie. So 
there's little tiny things we can do like that that make all the difference in the world to then help us ask the next question. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you're pointing out there is, you know, the dealers want to do it. No, because it's not the knowledge base behind it. If you're changing settings, is that devaluing the manufacturer's product? Well, they gave you things to change, so it's enhancing their product. So no, right. I don't right. think so. And then the other side of the coin is, at that point, are you willing to go learn all the electronic features that the bike suddenly has now of slide control and wheelie control and traction control and ABS and, 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 and. Are you willing to go learn all that? Or are you tech savvy where you're so used to tapping things with the expectation that this will do this now that you get to a corner, pin the throttle and go, well, it's going to work. That's what all this is for. Right. And, and the technical generation has that expectation, which is why it's much cheaper than going through 2000 to 2010 with building a new bike every two years to just put more stuff in an electronic box that's clipped into the harness. So what do you, what do you want out of the motorcycle? We've never had that buying choice realistically before. We've just gone down a line of motorcycles, and that's my bike. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a line of yellow ones, you're connected to that one. Right. It's much more complicated now, but nobody asks those questions. We still make the emotional choice that that bike yeah. is mine. Right. The following question of how do I make it work for me never gets asked. Yep, yep. I well. want it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's exactly. Here's my money. Give it to <laughs> Give me, me that right now. <laughs> right. Can I afford the monthly payment? <laughs> and here we go. Yeah. Game yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So cool. Yeah. All right. So I think I, th- I think everyone's got some things to think about. So um, before before we close it out, any uh, final thoughts, comments, anything we didn't touch on? I, I think. Our conversation's been very well-rounded, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, I would just encourage anyone that's listening to be glass half full in in this instance and look at this and say, I, I'm going to take on something. If you're in construction or you use your hands, get a tape measure out and go and measure sag and static sag. Watch that video, pause it, see what you've got, and put a cable tie on the front floor. Yeah. If you are not technical, don't use tools. How does the bike evolve from 30 miles to 80 miles to 150 miles? How does it change when you ride it? Is it good? Is it bad? How does it make you feel? So start by asking a very simple question. Does my tire pressure gain three or four pounds on this ride in this weather? Well, it only gained one. So what does that mean? Well, you're not getting... It means you're not getting heat. Oh, that's right. interesting. Yeah. Pick a data point and for one month, leverage the free content that's out there. Go read something and for a month, give it a go. Take the cool. first step, plant that first foot as you're going to do, aside mm-hmm. from your homework right. with the handbar. Take that first step and then share with the people you ride with what you figured out or what you experienced. Because... The more we can do that, the more that people will come to get an unbelievable product that you can buy today. Even if it's a base motorcycle, it's pretty staggering what you can acquire. 
Yeah. But then why can you not get the most out of that by spending time, which is free, essentially. Yeah. A bit of research, which is free because that's just time and a willingness to be open-minded. And then take that information and build on it. Yep. To ask the next question or do the next task. Yeah. The more we do that, the better off we all are because your motorcycle will not only be fun to look at, but when you ride it, because it is truly the worst selfish thing that we do is get on a motorcycle ride. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nothing <laughs> matters. It's all about me right, right. now. Right <laughs> Sorry, the rest of you Absol- go away. Absolutely. <laughs> can, can we and are we willing to be able to get so much more out of that moment by asking a couple of questions? That's what I would really hope people can turn around and do after listening to this. Yeah. And in time, we'll do the next level where people have had time to digest this, and, and then I can do the next step. But sure. Absolutely. Your truth, your podcast, and your experiences being shared from this provide, because of the trust you have with your audience, a truthful right. statement that they will then probably leverage. Sure. And that I'm very grateful for. Yeah. No, and, and I, I really like your idea about paying it forward because as you were talking, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, by spreading the word, right? Like, so, so you know, someone that knows a listener or whatever, you know, they may not know me well enough to, to take my word that it works and it did such and such or, or yours or whatever, right? But their buddy across the street who's tried what you're talking about and goes, my God, like it's such a difference in how this bike handles. I'm enjoying riding so much more. What are you, what are you talking about? What's the thing? You know, cause cause, right. People, people, you know, people trust the people they know kind of thing. And so it does sound in talking to you, right there, there is, there's something to be, I don't know what's the word to put it. There, there's a, a general agreement or something in the motorcycling community that, that needs to be, shattered taken down a little bit right because because like you've said you know that the trouble you've had in certain situations getting your message out so yeah so i will do what i can to help and that is simply talking about your experiences as i help you move through this not maze but as i help you walk through a change and a reason then your circle of friends all have a different perspective sure. as you say because they will listen to you right Absolutely. so that that's that's all i can ask and and that's what i strive to do every day yeah awesome great science is asking questions yeah for sure for sure well it, so- it sounds like paradigm is just today's memory <laughs> yeah it, it sounds like you've gotten yourself into an awesome job you know whether it's something you knowingly created or it's just kind of evolved that way but it's, it's, it sounds like it's very rewarding i mean I, I get the i'm getting the impression you love what you do which is really cool you have to be careful with that right don't turn mm-hmm. a passion into a full-time yeah, career job, right <laughs> 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 yeah you might start making money out of it or something right <laughs> Yeah. All right, Dave, this has been really, really awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and I know the listeners are going to love it. And uh, yeah, so when, yeah, when you get a chance, shoot me over that info and uh, I'll start getting getting this stuff into play. All right. Thanks again for the opportunity, Chris. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a blast. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Take care. Good night, Dave. Bye.
I really want to thank Dave Moss for taking the time to join me on the show and sharing his experience and expertise on motorcycle ergonomics, suspension, and bike setup. As he promised, Dave sent me suggested settings to try on the forks and the rear shock of my Kawasaki Z900 RS. This was in addition to the changes he had already mentioned in the show for my handlebars. Unfortunately, I haven't tried the changes yet, not because I'm not anxious to try them out, but simply because I've been traveling a lot lately and I haven't been riding much. Such is the life of a racing fan, photographer, and podcaster. But I will be giving them a try very soon and letting you know what I find out, as well as following up with Dave to share my results and finding out any other suggestions that he has for my bike. And of course, you can reach out to Dave yourself. He has a lot of very good free content available, and he is very willing to help anyone that reaches out to him. And who knows, if you like his stuff enough, you may decide you want to subscribe to get his other more advanced content. As always, thank you to everyone who has written in. I always enjoy reading listener messages and feedback, and I answer everyone's emails and messages personally as soon as I can, usually the same day and often within the hour. I just recently got a really cool message from Alan R. Crawford, who is a new listener and also a new writer. He lives in Springfield, Massachusetts, and is riding a 2005 Yamaha V-Star 650. I'll read his full email on an upcoming episode, but he is looking for riding partners in the Springfield area. So if you're interested in meeting up and riding with Alan, shoot me an email or message, and I will get you connected. We already had one of my Facebook followers reply to my Facebook post, so it looks like Alan already has someone else to ride with and share motorcycle tips and tricks. I have to say it's very rewarding when opportunities like this come up and I can help connect other riders that are out there. I'd also like to ask your help with something. Although I get various statistics from my podcast hosting company, it is hard to get a really clear idea of who is out there and listening. For example, I know that to date I've had almost 22,000 downloads of my podcast episodes. With 28 episodes out there, that's an average of about 770 downloads per episode. My most popular episodes have been downloaded over 1,700 times. But none of that tells me how many regular listeners I have. In some cases, maybe somebody finds an episode of interest to them and just listens to that one and doesn't subscribe. Or maybe they download an episode and don't listen to all of it. I just don't know. I'm guessing I probably have between 300 and 400 regular listeners, but I'd like to get more information to get a better idea of the audience that I'm serving. So please do me a favor. If you enjoy the podcast and you haven't already written in, please drop me an email or fill out the contact form on my website or message me in Facebook or Instagram and let me know that you're out there, what you ride, and anything that you want to let me know about the show. I know it's a bit of a pain in the you-know-what. You may be listening now in your car or on your motorcycle and then must remember later on today to send me a message or email. But if you're willing, it'll be a great, great help to me. And don't worry, I won't use your contact details to spam you or anything like that. I'm just looking for any honest feedback that will help me gauge the size of my audience and what you do and don't like about the show and what you want to hear about. And of course, I won't read anything you send me on the show unless you specifically let me know that it is okay to do so. And keep in mind that your feedback really will matter. Next week, I'll be releasing my 30th episode, which is an interview with Paul Carruthers and Sean Bice from Moto America. Then I will do a special episode where I'll be looking back over the last 30 episodes, sharing my thoughts, and also catching up on some things, including reading listener emails that I have saved but not yet read on the show. The title of that episode will be something like Looking Back, Catching Up, and Listener Appreciation. 
but I will be taking the opportunity to reflect on the podcast and where I want to go with it next, how I can possibly monetize it to cover costs and maybe even make a little pocket money to balance out the amount of time that I invest into planning and producing the podcast. So any feedback you send me will factor in and help me decide where to go with all of this next. And if you are willing to help support the podcast financially, please let me know what would be acceptable to you, like listening to advertising or donating via PayPal or supporting the podcast via Patreon, maybe buying t-shirts, stickers, or other swag. This is your opportunity to let me know what would work the best for you. Of course, you can reach me at any time at soyouwantaride at yahoo.com or use the link in the podcast notes to my website, soyouwantaridemotorcycle.com, where you'll find all my contact details. And if you would like to help support the podcast now, you can make a donation using PayPal by going to paypal.me slash Christopher Geis or click the donate link at the upper right side of my website. Anything you'd like to donate, whether a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars, or whatever you feel is appropriate, will definitely be greatly appreciated. I do still have stickers available, so if you want to help me promote the podcast, just email me your mailing address and I will get some stickers out there. Please like and leave me comments and a rating on iTunes and any other podcast service that you use. That'll help my podcast show up closer to the top of search results and make it easier for other people to find my podcast. Please also like and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. You can just search for So You Want to Ride, or you'll find the links on my website or in the show notes for this episode. Keep spreading the word and help me build my online and listener communities. Thank you for listening, and just remember, whatever you do, it's always time to ride. Thank <laughs> you.